Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Uh, today, we continue our COVID-19 coverage. We are uh, updating two episodes per week right now, releasing interviews, uh, op-eds, our student writings and policy digest all on the po topic of coronavirus, trying to bring you some of the most frontier and fascinating discussions related to the crisis. Uh, so we really hope you could visit us on policypunchline.com slash COVID-19 to get some of those insights. Uh, there is an ongoing debate on the economic shutdown. And this is quite front and central in the COVID-19 policy response, uh, which is, are we overreacting by shutting down the economy. Uh, in terms of economic policy, I do think there is a pretty valid debate on whether the negative effects on the economy induced by this government shutdown would actually end up causing more disruption in people's livelihoods uh, than the loss of lives otherwise caused by COVID-19 if we don't enact those extreme measures. So there is quite an acute debate going on in the US right now. Some people are saying that we have overreacted. Some people are saying we're not being cautious enough. We should really shut down the economy even earlier. Uh, so we're really happy to be joined by Professor Emil Werner from MIT today. He is an assistant professor at MIT Sloan School of Management, and his research has long been focusing on the connection between financial markets and the macroeconomy. He has just recently released this very, very interesting paper titled Pandemics Depress the Economy, Public Health Interventions Do Not, Evidence from the 1918 Flu. Uh, so it's a fascinating paper just released end of March, very, very timely and topical and, and should really provide us some great insights uh, on what we should do today in terms of our MPI, non-pharmaceutical interventions. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us all the way from Boston, Emil. It's great to be with you. Uh, and also co-hosting this show with me is, is a research leader on our team, Sam Lee. You've uh, heard him co-hosting the, the, the episode on Francis Lee on uh, the Donald Trump impeachment episode before. So thanks so much for joining me again, Sam. Thanks so much for having me, Tiger. Awesome. So I, I kind of gave a very awkward intro to your most uh, recent research paper, Emil, uh, which is titled Pandemics Depress the Economy Public Health Interventions Do Not Evidence from the 1918 Flu, where you essentially uh, examine the, the effects uh, of the, the pandemic MPIs during the 1918 Spanish flu and then kind of uh, juxtapose that on today's situation. A very, very fascinating and timely paper just released at the end of March. Uh, would you mind just starting off this interview by giving us a quick overview of some of the, the points that you are bringing up uh, in the paper, what you think our listeners should briefly uh, take away from before we elaborate to the details? Uh, the point or what we do in the paper is we go back and we look at the experience of the United States during the 1918 flu pandemic. And we do this by looking at how different uh, regions, so different cities and states, fared in terms of their economy during this period. Um, so we looked at two things. One, uh, what the impact of the pandemic was on the economy. Uh, and second, how the economy responded to different public health interventions. I think the main takeaway that we that we have in the paper is that uh, during the 1918 flu pandemic, there doesn't appear to be any trade-off between using public health interventions to reduce mortality in the pandemic 
uh, and the economy. Uh, so it, it seems that the places that introduced public health interventions did not actually fare worse economically around the pandemic. And if anything, they actually come out stronger uh, from, from the pandemic. Um, and we, we discussed sort of why that might be. Um, and I think that's sort of the, the main lesson of, of the paper uh, is that it doesn't necessarily have to be the case that these two, that sort of saving lives on the one hand using public health measures and the economy have to be at odds. Um, because when you intervene um, with these public health measures, you're actually benefiting the economy indirectly by making the pandemic less severe, which allows the economy to come out stronger on the other side. Uh, but it seems that the, the key point is that after the, the pandemic has passed by, then the economic recovery would be would be uh, even quicker in places that have enacted those fairly extreme uh, and quick and rapid MPI measures. But doesn't that still imply that in the short term, the economic pain would be quite acute? Right. So um, in our paper, you know, this is a paper using historical data. So we're, we're using data from, you know, between 1914, roughly, and 1923. So we don't have kind of the very high frequency data that would let you sort of analyze the very the very sort of high frequency dynamic costs and benefits of a pandemic. Um, but what we can say is that we when we look in, in annual data, we don't find any evidence of any cost in 1918. And we find some evidence of maybe even some benefits in 1919. Now, you might ask, well, you know, how, how can this be? There must be some costs in the very short term. Uh, and I think that intuition is correct. If you react quickly, uh, and aggressively, there, there, you know, there will be some costs relative to the counterfactual of doing nothing. But because these pandemics move so quickly uh, and they infect people so quickly, and we've seen how exponential curves uh, and you know, uh, doubling times of three or four days can lead a pandemic to take over an economy very quickly, the costs uh, can actually be very short term uh, because imagine, that you don't do something uh, and you let, let the economy uh, kind of keep going along as normal, uh, then you know maybe for two or three weeks, your economy is going to be doing better relative to a counterfactual without MPIs. But already after two, three, four weeks, because these pandemics move so quickly, the economy is going to suffer because of the direct negative impact of the pandemic itself. And to some extent, MPIs actually mitigate the severity of the pandemic. So they can actually be good for the economy uh, you know, even in in the medium term, where the medium term doesn't have to be much more uh, than a few, you know, uh, a month or two. Because it sounds like the short term economic pain is almost inevitable, because even if you don't shut down the economy, people will feel less inclined to go consume or shop or, or and people lose their jobs anyway, so that you might as well engage in those MPIs to, to alleviate the me medium term and long term effects uh, that, that a pandemic could cause. That's that's exactly right. And that's another key point of our paper and also some other research, um, which is that essentially the counterfactual to introducing NPIs is not to have a normal economy. The economy is not going to be normal during a pandemic, right? People are uh, rationally afraid of contracting the virus and so they're gonna change their economic behavior. So you know, even before uh, these social distancing measures were put in place in the US in, in, in the past few weeks, Many private businesses, private individuals were deciding on their own to stop going to restaurants, to stop going to movie theaters, to stop going to watch sports games uh, or you know, to work from home. 
So even without any intervention, people are, are you know, rationally going to alter their economic behavior, cut back on their spending, cut back on their labor supply if they can, uh, in ways that are going to be, you know, uh, uh, harmful for the economy in the in the short term, because they're afraid of contracting the virus. And so, you know, these these behavioral responses uh, that are bad for the economy, or you know, the downturn in the economy, isn't you know primarily due to the public health interventions, they're just as much due to these behavioral uh, responses. And that's kind of a key, a key point. Uh, so, so before we d- diving in a little bit deeper on your research and talking about the case in 1918 and, and looking ahead, would you mind just giving us a quick uh, overview of your thoughts on the current measures that we are seeing today in the U.S.? So based on your research, looking at the, the MPIs today and the, and the shutdown, what is your general take? General take is that you know, if you compare the NPIs that we have today to 1918, they are stricter today. They are more draconian. So, for example, the closure of non-essential businesses is not something that you saw in 1918. In 1918, they staggered business hours to basically reduce crowding in, you know, trams, uh, public transportation, that sort of thing. Um, whereas today, we've actually seen the closure of non-essential businesses. So, I think uh, in some ways, the measures have been you know, ex- uh, aggressive and perhaps too aggressive uh, today. And I think part of the reason why they're too aggressive today is because policymakers simply don't have the data on the ground to be able to figure out you know, how to calibrate uh, these measures uh, in a smart way. And we also don't have a good understanding of what are MPIs that lead to very high health benefits with the least uh, economic costs. And this is this is where I think we need to uh, you know, think a lot harder um, uh, about this. So I think that we're we're far from an ideal point in terms of the these public health interventions. I think that you know one can think about different businesses differently, and you know it's clear that you know restaurants should probably be closed, um, but there's other types of businesses, um, you know, that uh, could could continue to operate, uh, you know, perhaps not completely as normal, but with you know staggered hours. Uh, with you know different social distancing measures in place that wouldn't be quite as disruptive as what we've seen. But I think you know public uh, officials have had to take very drastic measures um, in part because of a lack of uh, a lack of preparedness and a lack of data. Great. Well, now that we've kind of established that what we want to talk about today, we we thought we'd go a little bit deeper into the study. So to start with, why pick the nineteen eighteen pandemic? What can we learn from an event that happened more than a century ago that that can tell us something about what's happening today and in today's economy? Right, that's a great question. Um, as someone who uh, has done a lot of work on financial crises, we know that we can learn a lot, uh, or we learned a lot in two thousand eight from you know the research that was done on the Great Depression that was you know also almost a hundred years ago. So in general, uh, there's a lot to learn from economic uh, history. With this particular case, pandemics are, you know, just relatively rare examples in history. Fortunately, I mean, we 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 live in an, an age where pandemics seem to have become, or epidemics seem to have become more frequent. Um, but we don't have any episode that is as severe uh, as as uh, as what we're seeing today since 1918. And so the 1918 flu pandemic. Uh, was an interesting case because it, it was just so severe and in some ways provides perhaps an upper bound on how bad it could get 
um, today. And so that's why we thought it was an interesting episode um, uh, to, to, to look so, at. So maybe just going a little bit deeper in, in terms of the methodology and, and related to that, would you mind just telling us a little bit about how exactly you conducted the paper? Uh, it may, maybe it doesn't have to go into the deep econometric methods, but uh, we would love to hear how, how exactly you kind of measure the, the economic impacts. Right. So our analysis is actually quite simple. You can essentially think about it as uh, comparing sort of treatment and control uh, places in the U.S. So think about, you know, one part of the U.S., like uh, the state of Pennsylvania, is, is, uh, was a part of the U.S. that was hit very hard by the 1918 flu pandemic, just in terms of mortality. Uh, so mortality was very high in Pennsylvania. And we can compare a place like Pennsylvania to a state that was less affected, um, like the next state over, uh, the state of Ohio. And so essentially what our analysis does is it compares the evolution of economic outcomes uh, like you know, manufacturing employment, like banking assets, um, like consumer durables in places that were more severely affected, like Pennsylvania, to places that were less severely affected, like Ohio. Uh, and so what, what we see in the first part of the paper is that you know, not too surprisingly, the places that were more severely affected see a decline in economic activity in the year around the 1918 uh, flu pandemic. Um, and what's perhaps also you know, interesting is that that decline uh, seems to last for several years. So there's some persistence in the negative impact of the pandemic. We don't see a pure kind of V-shaped recovery um, in a place like Pennsylvania. Places like Pennsylvania lag behind places like Ohio for several, uh, for several years after the, the pandemic. So while the United States as a whole is growing very quickly, the areas that are affected more severely uh, are, are, are lagging behind. Um, the second part of our analysis looks at uh, public health interventions. These were mainly put in place across US cities. So we look at 43 cities uh, in the United States that varied in the speed and the aggressiveness or the intensity with which they implemented these public health interventions known as non-pharmaceutical interventions. And there we essentially do the same thing. We compare the evolution of economic outcomes uh, in a city like uh, uh, Philadelphia, which was quite slow to implement public health interventions uh, and had them in place for a relatively short amount of time to a city like Minneapolis that reacted very quickly uh, and also had these measures in place for a longer amount of time and had you know, uh, stricter measures in place. And so we can essentially just compare how the economy performs in these more and less affected uh, places. And that's how we reach our conclusions. Emil, I would actually love to go a little bit deeper on the methodology that you used for this paper. Uh, you mentioned your treatment and control groups, and those are quite technical terms for maybe some of our listeners. Uh, I would love just to get a little bit nerdy uh, here because uh, I'm actually taking econometrics applications right now in, in Princeton, uh, which is a uh, pretty famous course in uh, teaching students on how to reason through some of those uh, economic studies uh, and try to come up with the right tools uh, to ask precise questions. And one of the things that we constantly talk about uh, is omitted variable biases, which is how do you actually control for the factors that other factors that could influence uh, the outcome of your study that, that so uh, in other words, uh, let's say you you say, uh, Scranton and Philadelphia 
and Pittsburgh are hit the hardest, uh, how do you know those places had a worse economic recovery because they acted this MPI slower and not because they simply ha uh, had a larger population working in coal mines? And this is actually the perspective brought up by Professor Elizabeth Bogan after we asked her about what she thought about the 1918-1919 the flu pandemic and the recovery process. And she brought up this as what she speculates to be a reason why those cities did worse. So I would love to just hear a little bit more of your thoughts on how you select uh, your variables, how you make sure that you are taking into consideration of the factors that could influence the outcome of your study. No, you're exactly right. In these types of studies, um, of course, things are not randomly assigned. And so we want to think about all of those types of what you know we call identification concerns or omitted variable bias. Um, so I'm happy to hear, hear you're taking econometric applications because I was actually a TA for that course uh, many years ago when I was at Princeton. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that those uh, that uh, the professors who are teaching it now, uh, is it still Mark Watson uh, who's teaching it? It's Professor Farber this 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 semester. Uh, Hank Farber Hank Farber is teaching it. All right. It's very very hard. Exactly some of the some of the points, uh, some of those important points to learn uh, uh, from doing this type of of of, of analysis. Um, and that's exactly right. So, um, you know, the concern is essentially that the areas that were more severely affected by the pandemic, and also the you know the areas that implemented more aggressive public health measures, you know, maybe those places just were hit by other economic shocks, or in other words, other things were going on in those places that happened to be correlated um, with you know, uh, the severity of the pandemic and also these public health interventions that meant that they performed differently for other reasons. And so essentially, you know, there's a variety of different ways uh, we can address that. Um, so the first thing in a study like this that you always wanna do is you wanna just take a look at, well, you know, what are the average characteristics of places that were more versus less affected? Is it the case that the places that were more affected um, are much richer or much poorer or have a very different sectoral composition um, in terms of like agriculture and manufacturing? Are they more urban or more rural? Um, and what we find is that in general, the places look reasonably similar. Um, so you find that the places that were more severely affected by the pandemic itself uh, that is the places that have higher mortality, they tend to be clustered uh, in parts of the East, like you know, Professor uh, uh, Bogan was noting, because the virus sort of travels from East to West. But even within the East, there's lots of differences in the severity of the pandemic. Some of it is due to differences in climate, uh, in you know, immunological factors and socioeconomic factors, just like today, we're seeing that in some parts of the US, uh, you know, some cities are just being hit harder than others for a variety uh, of different reasons. Um, so, you know, that gives us kind of some, uh, some uh, reassurance, you know, because these places look relatively similar that we can compare them. Uh, the next thing you can do is you can then, you know, sit down and try to think about all of the potential omitted variables um, that might be driving your results and try to include uh, 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 all of those in your analysis and see if things substantively change. And so, for example, you know, we looked at differences uh, in income in different places, differences in you know, the composition uh, of employment, differences in density. We looked at, for example, um, differences 
uh, in you know how much exports these cities were doing because this is uh, during World War One, uh, and so exports to you know warring nations was an important driver of, of U.S. economic growth during World War One. Um, and in general, we find that you know we can go through uh, you know all of these different factors, uh, and we don't really find any meaningful differences in in the results. Um, so you know we, we we try to sort of do our best uh, along that dimension. Um, and it doesn't look like, you know, the places that were more severely affected are, you know, uh, more severely affected in, in terms of their economy because of other factors. And also, we don't find that the places that intervene more aggressively are performing better economically for some, you know, unobserved uh, reason that we can sort of try to account for. Now, of course, that, uh, that you know, is not proof um, of our results, but it is sort of somewhat somewhat reassuring so you mentioned um v-shaped economic recoveries and um the nature of the economic shock of the pandemic can you talk a little bit more about the difference between v-shaped and u-shaped and how these concepts relate to your findings right well so you know whenever you have a really bad economic crisis you're always hoping for a v-shaped recovery that is a recovery where you essentially bounce back to where you were and continue on the same growth path as what you were on uh, before um, uh, before the shock. Um, and we know that you know in other types of crises like financial crises, often we don't get these V-shaped recoveries. We get more recoveries where the economy never seems to quite catch up to where it would have been if it had followed the previous trend. Uh, so we saw that, for example, for the 2008 financial crisis that the US economy never really seemed to fully recover. Uh, from the crisis. Um, and so what was uh, an interesting question to us was if after the 1918 flu pandemic, you know, did the economy just bounce back? Um, because if you look at the U.S. economy in the aggregate, it did seem to kind of perform quite well after the pandemic. Um, but what we found was that if you compare areas that are more versus less severely affected, going back to my earlier example of Pennsylvania, you know, versus Ohio, for example, um, then you find that Pennsylvania doesn't, you know, Pennsylvania gets hit harder, their employment declines, uh, and even after they start growing again in Pennsylvania, they never fully catch up to where they would have been if the if they hadn't been hit by by the pandemic relative to a place like Ohio. And that tells you that these types of episodes um, actually can have long-term economic costs in the sense that they mean that that your economy performs uh, persistently worse relative to what would have happened without the pandemic. Um, and that also suggests that the benefits to any types of policies that you can use to mitigate the crisis uh, are actually going to be uh, good, uh, you know, uh, stronger because they lead to, to you know, more lasting benefits. Now, this sort of, this raises the question, well, why might there be these persistent impacts? Why don't we just bounce back uh, right after the after the, the the pandemic, and our paper can't definitively answer that question, but we can speculate a little bit. Um, so, you know, the first obvious direct impact is that the pandemic, you know, not only leads to increase in mortality, but also has persistent uh, uh, effects on people's health and general well-being even after the pandemic. So, there's negative effects on morbidity. Um, that we know can have negative impacts on productivity, on human capital, 
and, and so these are factors that that can hurt the economy uh, uh, for 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 several years down the road. Beyond just the negative persistent health effects, um, you can imagine you know lots of other reasons why the economy uh, isn't able to catch up. So one is that you know some employees that get laid off um, when they want to go back uh, to rejoin the, the businesses that they were working for before, maybe the businesses have closed or been taken over by new owners. And so it can be very hard uh, to to kind of reconnect or rematch those employees with the jobs that they had uh, before. Similarly, uh, you know the balance sheets of consumers and of businesses, uh, are you know going to be severely impaired by an episode where there's a you know a very big economic contraction. And we know from finance that when you know business and consumer balance sheets get weaker, uh, sometimes you know people default uh, or, or businesses go out of business. That's bad for the economy. But even if they don't go out of business, they just become less credit worthy. Banks become less interested in lending to those businesses because they're less safe, uh, and that makes it harder for those businesses to grow at well grow as well. And we know that can take a long time to re recover from. So there's a variety of, of sort of direct and also indirect propagation mechanisms that can lead to these you know, more U-shaped or even L-shaped type, uh, type recoveries. So I uh, interviewed Professor Marcus Bunemeyer just a couple of days ago, and he brought up the same point that you mentioned is that uh, if you don't act with decisiveness and swiftness, uh, the potential extra level of loss that you could have uh, because of a slower recovery could could actually be way worse down down the road. And also, the, you, you were talking about this propagation mechanism throughout the financial system, which I find really interesting. And I know a lot of your research uh, kind of connects financial markets with macroeconomy. And a lot of people are very worried about the sort of liquidity spirals or liquidity crisis right now. Um, if, if the banks don't get the money, they can't lend, and, and eventually it will become a solvency crisis for the entire economy. And, and that's why the Fed or, or the Treasury need to inject liquidity into the system so swiftly. So I would just love to get a little bit more of your thoughts on that front. Do, do you foresee, because uh, I, I actually, tying back to your research, that you actually included state and city level banking data in, in the 1918 study, which is really, really interesting. So I would really love to hear your thoughts on how you uh, reassess the situation today in terms of the, the financial stability um, perspective. So first, let me just say on, on what we found in, in, in 1918, what you see is that the places that uh, are more severely affected by the pandemic and have this economic downturn, um, the, the banks uh, see a gradual reduction in the size of their assets. So they're making fewer loans uh, uh, you know, gradually. And you also see that banks have to start recognizing losses. Um, so uh, that suggests that you know, households and businesses are defaulting on their loans because the economy is doing worse. Um, the, you know, luckily in 1918, the banking system seemed to be relatively resilient to this. So there wasn't a big increase in bank failures. And that I think you know, mitigated what would have been an even worse prevented what would have been an even worse crisis uh, from, uh, from breaking out in 1918. I think today, these are some of these factors that we have to be uh, very, very alert to. Um, that you know, if all of a sudden uh, the financial system has to absorb very large losses, uh, then we know that that can lead to you know, these spirals where there's uh, you know, even larger contractions in lending, you know, even larger contractions in asset prices, um, and that that makes everything worse. So 
it's very important that we make sure um, that you know businesses and households have the liquidity that they need to get through, uh, and that banks, you know, uh, so so that you know uh, banks don't start realizing uh, losses uh, during during this crisis. No, that that totally makes sense. Yeah. So so the, the basically the idea is that if we're seeing how banks are getting defaulted on in terms of you know households and businesses, their balance sheets are are contracting. That will actually hurt the banks, and the banks couldn't lend to other people and other economy eventually overall strikes. And I think that maybe tying back to your what you just brought up about the two thousand eight financial crisis, a lot of people criticized. Europeans for not saving their banks as swiftly as the U.S. and that is why the European recovery after the 2008 financial crisis was much much slower. That's exactly that's exactly right. So you know today we want to. Fortunately, we're going into the crisis with a banking system that it is is itself much better capitalized than in 2008. You know just because of all of the regulation that's been put in place, so the banks themselves seem much more resilient to to shocks. On the other hand, in the United States, there's you know a bigger faction of financial intermediation that's done through shadow banks or through through the non-bank system, and so uh, there's there's pockets, uh, large pockets of the financial system um, that you know could become quite vulnerable to a shock like this. But uh, it is you know very important to make sure that our banks remain healthy, uh, that they have enough capital to get through the crisis, and that also suggests, for example, making sure that you know banks that might be undercapitalized. Are not paying out equity uh, in the form of dividends during this. That they actually retain the equity that they need, so that they can absorb some losses, so that they can come out on the other side and really start lending to businesses again as the economy sort of tries to take off.、Um, we need to essentially create an environment where the economy can, you know, take off uh, uh, as uninhibited as 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 possible. This question is maybe a little bit beyond the scope of your research, but. What, in your opinion, what should we expect for the economy once we are able to halt this initial spread? I know in your study you found that、um, after the initial 1918 outbreak,、um, cities that were hit most severely took years for their economies to recover. Do you think we can ex- expect、um, a similar trend to happen today, or is the、um, government stimulus, the trillion dollars that we're putting? Into the economy potentially enough to stave off、um, the type of downturn that we saw in in the early twentieth century. Right, I think it's it's difficult to say. I think there are still some concerns about you know what the recovery is going to be like after this.、Um, it's still, in my view, a little bit early, just because we don't know how bad you know this、uh, this outbreak is 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 really going to be. We don't know whether once we start Relaxing social distancing again. Whether there's going to be second waves,、uh, for example, of the outbreak,、um, it's 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 something we don't know. Sort of how quickly the policy response in terms of, for example, testing and tracing,、uh, and having you know more well calibrated、uh, public health and local public health interventions. So I think if all goes well, we could see a a reasonably strong recovery. Maybe not you know a pure V-shaped recovery, but you know. Uh, still, still a strong recovery. My sense is that in China, the recovery seems to have been, you know,、uh, reasonably good、uh, in 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 parts of the country,、um, and so that's something that we can hope for、uh, in, you know, in the United States and in other countries around the world as well. My concern, though, is that if 
this turns out to be, you know, an outbreak where uh, once we start relaxing again, maybe there there will be second waves. Maybe we'll have to do some uh, shutdowns or some social social distancing again. Um, then, you know, going into those that second round, um, many businesses and consumers are going to be in even worse shape than they were going into the first round. And so that's when these sort of negative uh, negative kind of propagation mechanisms of you know defaults of business closures of business failures uh, and you know losses for for lenders uh, could become even more severe so I think it's difficult to really do uh, forecasting right now um, it's you know it's hard enough even to do now casting um, but I think we do have to be ready uh, for the risk of uh, uh, a recovery that's you know weaker than a, than a, a v-shaped recovery and that's something where policy has to be stand ready on the other side to really provide uh, stimulus and support uh, for for the economy to grow once you know the the public health environment is such that we are actually ready to grow again so emil you were uh, just talking about the negative propagation mechanism and i i think it's very it's indeed very dangerous, this trend about, you know, the second wave coming in and things could eventually get even way worse uh, than than before. I, I would just love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on the specific MPI measures that, that you wrote about in your paper, because it does sound quite counterintuitive how implementing MPIs would result in, you know, greater economic growth down the road. Right. Well, so uh, the MPI measures that we looked at in our paper on the 1918 flu are measures that resemble some of the measures that we've seen put in place in many places in the world today. So they include things like school, uh, church and uh, theater closures, public gathering bans, and also quarantine and isolation of suspected cases, um, as well as some guidance on mask wearing. So even back in 1918, they kind of understood that mask wearing you know, might be a good idea, a way to protect other people, especially in crowded places. Um, so these were some of the measures that were put in place um, and that have been studied extensively in the epidemiology literature. And so in our paper, what we did is we looked at essentially the speed with which these measures were put in place and the intensity which with, with which they were put in place. And intensity is essentially a combination of how long they were in place and how many measures were in place at once. Um, and there's you know significant variation, as I mentioned, across cities, even some cities that are right next to each other, like Minneapolis and St. Paul, both in Minnesota, had completely different policies, essentially because local policymakers um, decided to go for different strategies, just like we're seeing in some different parts of the world today that, you know, you know, different countries are going for different strategies in terms of how to deal with, uh, with the crisis. So in our paper, what we looked at is different cities that implemented NPIs, these public health interventions, uh, you know, either more quickly or less quickly, and also more or less intensively. Um, and what we found is that the cities that reacted more quickly, and also those that had more intensive NPIs in place, uh, actually came out of the pandemic relatively stronger. Uh, and the question is, you know, how can that be? Um, that seems highly counterintuitive. Um, and, you know, the, the reason that we give is that um, NPIs have both a direct but also an indirect effect on the economy. So the direct effect is, you know, the intu the intuition that we all have that NPIs constrain economic activity, you know, by just constraining mobility, uh, by limiting, you know, interactions that are necessary for ordinary economic activity to take place. 
And so therefore, the NPIs are necessarily going to be bad for the economy. That's the direct effect. But the indirect effect is that during a pandemic, the pandemic itself is just so bad for the economy for reasons that we've talked about, that people don't want to go out and spend money. They don't want to go to work. Businesses don't want to invest when uh, you know there's uh, all the uncertainty that's brought about by a pandemic. Um, and so in a pandemic, the pandemic itself is so destructive for the economy that any you know policy that you can use that directly mitigates the severity of the pandemic can actually be good for the economy by essentially you know allowing the economy to come out on the other side uh, of the pandemic with lower mortality, uh, with lower morbidity, um, and you know with a healthier population that that can then uh, resume growth afterwards. And so that's why you know these NPIs, which of course in normal times would be bad for the economy, in a pandemic might not necessarily be bad for the economy. Uh, and that's, I think, the key insight of our paper is that there isn't necessarily a trade-off between these public health interventions that save lives and the economy, because by using these public health interventions, you're addressing the root of the, of the crisis, which is the pandemic itself. These results have huge implications, especially when uh, we have politicians and, and opinion writers in, in various journalistic outlets, um, you know, decrying these policies for slowing down the economy, for putting people out of jobs. Um, so obviously your results have are, are very important in, in terms of intervening in this debate. But is there really, can we really draw um, comparisons between what happened in 1918 and what happened today? Are there enough similarities, you think, that we can take these results and say, oh, these are, are uh relevant to the economy today? That's a, a great question. And I think the first thing that we want to say is, you know, that we don't want to just naively extrapolate uh, our results from 1918 to today. I think the point that we're trying to make is that in a pandemic, things are, are, are a bit more complicated. Um, so first of all, you know, this idea that the, the root cause of the economic problem is the policy response. Uh, and not the pandemic itself is something that you know holds both today as well as in 1918, and so our, our results definitely cast doubt on on that type the type of logic. Um, more generally, in terms of talking about the comparisons between 1918 and today, you know, there's there's a number of of similarities, but also a number of important differences. So, in terms of the important differences, the 1918 flu pandemic was significantly deadlier than the coronavirus, at least based on current estimates. And in particular, it was significantly dead, deadlier for prime-aged uh, adults. So interestingly, um, the 1918 flu had uh, what's sometimes referred to as a W-shaped age profile, where it killed a higher fraction of you know, very young individuals, individuals you know, up to age five, then working age individuals between say, age 18 and age about 40, uh, and then you know older individuals above the age of 60. Uh, and so that seems quite different to today. Uh, and so the, you know, the economic merits, the benefits of doing public health interventions like NPIs, I think are going to be stronger if you're in a pandemic that's deadlier for the most productive members of, of society. So you know, that suggests um, that you know, these, these benefits might be weaker uh, today. On the other hand, 
there's some other factors that suggest that you know the merits of NPIs might actually be stronger today. So for example, I think in many ways, the coronavirus outbreak is actually more salient for many people today uh, and leads to stronger behavioral responses by, by people who aren't necessarily that at risk in terms of, of, of dying from the virus, um, but who are still responding. So you know, we, we all know many people who have changed their behavior quite drastically um, because they're afraid of the contra contracting the virus. Uh, and they're also afraid of passing on the virus to you know, members of their family who are older. And so even though the virus is not as deadly uh, as the 1918 flu, the behavioral responses can still be quite, uh, quite strong. Um, there's some other differences between 1918 and today that kind of speak to the relative merits of NPIs, these public health interventions. So another you know, difference that I like to point out is that we should really be able to do better today than in 1918. Uh, we should be able to design smarter NPIs than what was put in place in 1918. I don't think we're there yet, um, but with the use of a variety of different forms of technology, the most important one being testing, we should be able to you know, set up NPIs that essentially uh, you know, have the least economic cost and the most, uh, the, the, the most health benefits at, at, at the same time. Um, so if we were able to do testing uh, at a, a scale that we've seen in other countries like South Korea, we would more effectively be able to use less harmful MPIs um, you know, that isolate uh, suspected cases um, and allow kind of more ordinary economic activity uh, to take place um, because uh, essentially with mass testing, you can also convince people credibly that actually it is safe to go out and partake in ordinary economic activity. Um, and so that I think actually you know, speaks to the fact that MPIs might even be less costly today than they were in 1918, at least if we if we do them in a smart way, where we're uh, where we're implementing them uh, in con in connection with with data, with uh, technology, uh, and with testing. I think you know one other difference that I want to highlight between 1918 and today uh, is you know of course the structure of the economy uh, is different, and and that sort of uh, you know affects the analysis in different ways. So on the one hand, uh, the role of services that require interpersonal contact uh, is greater today than it was back then. Uh, and so that suggests that the impact of you know, a pandemic is gonna be more severe for the economy today than it was uh, in, in 1918. The economy today is also more urban. So there's a higher density that also suggests a more negative effect uh, today uh, than, than, uh, than in 1918. And that suggests that actually using policies that can mitigate the severity of the pandemic have even more merits today than they had uh, in, in 1918. So, so you did mention how, you know, in the cases like South Korea, where mass testing is implemented, it has been proven to be quite successful and we should really come up with smarter strategies, responses, NPIs, uh, compared to the 1918 situation. I know you are not an epidemiologist, but what are, would be some of your recommendations in terms of what could feasibly the government could be achieving right now uh, to, to be effective NPI measures that don't hurt economy in the long run? I think that if we were you know, are able to ramp up testing at a much higher rate, and if we can test you know, uh, not only uh, people who display symptoms, um, but also uh, testing more at random to have a sense of how severe the outbreak is in different places, 
then you know local policymakers would be uh, much better able to calibrate local public health interventions um, to to you know essentially set them uh, 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 in you know uh, in proportion to the severity of the outbreak in in, in different parts of the country. And so testing uh, is of course uh, uh, you know essential to that. But even without testing, we can still get a sense of you know roughly what are the uh, uh, what is the percentage of the population in different parts of the country uh, that are, are potentially affected by the virus? So in a number of parts uh, uh, of the world, for example, in Italy now, you're trying to implement uh, technologies where you ask people to essentially share their uh, temperature and other symptoms that they may have through an app to the government. Uh, and the government can then get a sense of, uh, you know, what are, the, what are the hot pockets? Where are the cities? Where are the counties? Where are the zip codes? Where lots of people are reporting uh, you know, correlated symptoms. Uh, and that can give you a sense of, you know, not person by person who has the coronavirus, um, but it can give you a sense of where uh, the coronavirus, you know, is more or less, uh, uh, is more or less prevalent. And in those places, you can then decide to take more versus less drastic measures, as opposed to having, you know, these, these measures that we have in place right now, that in many places might actually be too extreme relative to what is, what, what, what would be appropriate. Um, and, you know, once you have that information, it's also very useful to communicate that information to the public so that the public sort of understands, okay, we're in a, we're in a place uh, where, you know, there's relatively low risk right now. So we can actually, you know, go on with relatively normal economic activity uh, and, you know, being, being conservative, but not shutting everything down. Uh, and then in other places you communicate, okay, here we know that actually the outbreak is, is very severe. So let's try to you know, turn on some of the most aggressive measures, uh, social distancing measures that we have. And I think by, you know, designing policies in that way, we could be getting more health benefits uh, with less economic disruption. Are you saying that maybe in a month or two, we would have to, instead of implementing a, a nationwide uh, policy in terms of shutdown, we're not shut down, social distancing, we're not social distancing. It should be more on a state-based or city-based response, combining the local context. Um, is, is that something you have in mind in terms of the NPIs? Yeah, that's, that, that's exactly what I have in mind, yeah, is that we could, you know, if we can test and trace uh, and if we can use other forms of data, we can get a sense of where the, where the, the hot pockets uh, of the outbreak, and we can, you know, react more aggressively in those places and in other places where we where we might have a, you know, a sense of of of, of in other places where we might sense that the outbreak is actually not particularly severe, uh, then we can have much lighter measures in place um, that are going to constrain economic activity less. Um, but also, we can communicate to people in those places that actually it is okay. Uh, you know, to go to the store, it is okay to undertake normal economic activity um, because uh, this is not uh, an area uh, where, you know, where the risk of infection is particularly high. So we've been talking about this comparison between the 1918 situation and today's situation. Uh, and, and you kind of mentioned some of the similarities and some of the differences. What about the comparison between a developed country like the U.S. versus underdeveloped and developing nations, because we interviewed uh, Princeton professor Peter Singer uh, this past weekend, and, and he's 
you know, very famous bioethicist, you know, talking about decisions when it comes to triaging, you know, doctors deciding who to live and die in very difficult situations. And, and uh, he said that, you know, we actually didn't expect him to say that, but he said the, the, the moral dilemma in terms of economic shutdown is very much there, very much present, because he said in places like India or in, in an underdeveloped country, if you have an economic shutdown, there's no doubt that people will actually die because of starvation, migration, because they can't meet their paycheck. That situation is way more severe than in a place like California, where sure, people would still suffer if they lose their job, if they can't get their health insurance, but the, the impact of on, on actual people's lives are way less drastic when, when, in a place like the US. So in, in a place like an underdeveloped country, he said the, the debate is very much valid to say we shouldn't shut down the economy. We should really prioritize on, on, on the, the greater good per se. Uh, so I would love to just hear a little bit more of your thoughts on that, if, if, if you have any. I think these challenges are even more difficult in developing countries than they are in, in developed countries. And I think that's why you know, figuring out how to calibrate these social distancing policies and other public health measures um, in, you know, uh, around the world is even more important in developing countries where some of these public health measures actually might have more, uh, more economic costs. Um, and I think, you know, in some ways, 1918 in the United States is actually quite instructive for developing countries today, because if you think about where the U.S. was in 1918, it had an income per capita of roughly the level of a country like Morocco. Um, so this is, you know, sort of a, an income per capita, a lower middle income uh, country. Uh, in 1918, we saw that this, you know, cities didn't put in place quite as strict or draconian measures as what we're seeing, uh, for example, in developed countries today. So uh, there is maybe an argument for, you know, using the public health measures that we know have the most benefits in terms of health. Uh, with, you know, and those that have the least economic costs. And there's a whole spectrum uh, of different policies, right? Where hygiene measures, uh, mask wearing is perhaps, you know, the measures that have the most benefit with the least kind of relative to cost, right? And then other measures like banning public gatherings have relatively high benefits and, you know, milder economic costs. Whereas, of course, uh, business closures or shutdowns have, the, you know, the most uh, economic costs relative to their health benefits. And so I think there's a whole uh, spectrum of policies. And I think, you know, in developing countries, where you set the line uh, is going to be different relative to, uh, to advanced uh, economies like the US. So I'd like to pivot a little bit to something that we touched on a little bit earlier. Uh, one of the main fears that policymakers and epidemiologists have is that as soon as social distancing policies are lifted, the virus will return. And, and this is something that you spoke about briefly. Um, is that something that you saw in your study of the 1918 pandemic? Were there instances of cities lifting um, social distancing policies and then having another wave of infections? So we haven't looked at this in our research, but the epidemiology research has looked at it. Um, and they do find that the places that lifted, you know, what exposed you would call too early uh, did see second waves of the outbreak um, and so I think that you know the, the the lesson there is that 
it does make sense to be relatively conservative in terms of, of how we lift, especially in places, you know, once we have the data in places where we know uh, that the number of infections uh, is still relatively high. Um, because, you know, the health costs of lifting too early, too early are obviously high, but the economic costs of lifting, you know, these restrictions too early are also going to be high. Because if, if you have a second wave, um, then that's going to be extremely costly uh, for, for the economy, especially as we alluded to earlier, that, you know, going into a second wave of a shutdown uh, or a second wave of, of strict social distancing, we're going to be even less prepared or resilient uh, in terms of just, you know, our, 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 our balance sheets um, uh, and, you know, small businesses balance sheets than we were going into the first wave. And so that's why I think it's better to err on the side of caution when opening up and to take small state, small steps rather than opening up too quickly and sort of undoing all of the, the good work that we've done uh, so far uh, through this, this, first, uh, this first shutdown. But uh, second wave or, or, or multiple recurrences is something that we have to be, uh, is that we have to be prepared for is a risk. And I think the best way to prepare for it is also, uh, again, um, to scale up testing capability so that we can you know, put out those embers um, before they turn into uh, kind of you know r rapid outbreaks wherever they should emerge. Uh, so it sounds like our conversation has kind of stepped into the forward-looking territory in terms of looking at uh, economic recovery measures, uh, what we could do months uh, ahead from now. So in terms of re economic recovery measures, uh, what measures can be taken uh, both now and later to actually reduce the decline in manufacturing output? employment, uh, much of what you studied in your study uh, back in 1918. So would love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on what exactly we could do uh, weeks and months down the road. Well, I think what's really important is, first of all, to solve the root of the crisis, which is the public health crisis or solve the pandemic. Um, and so once you know consumers and businesses feel that the risk uh, of you know contracting the virus and the risk of potential other outbreaks uh, has declined uh, uh, substantially. I think to some extent there will be an, uh, a kind of uh, you know natural recovery on its own. Um, but for a variety of reasons, we you know we know that that recovery might be incomplete or might not be as quick as it could be, and we might not get to potential as quickly as we could be. And so then I think it turns into a more traditional. Uh, you know, macroeconomic stabilization problem where unemployment is still too high relative to potential, um, and we can actually resort to more traditional uh, macroeconomic stimulus, um, especially targeting the sectors that you know were more severely affected um, by by this shock. You know, relative to, for example, uh, another type of crisis, um, and that that kind of you know once we get to that stage, I think we're in much better shape, and we can pull out the tools. You know, from previous recessions and previous crises that we know how to deal with much better uh, than, you know, than the public health crisis. I think, you know, solving the public health crisis, that's really the first, the first and most important step. Right. So on the subject of the public health crisis and the public health response, um, there was a recent piece in the Wall Street Journal arguing, it was kind of offering an argument against prolonged, prolonged economic shutdown, saying that in order to be able to fight the virus, to have a functioning health system, we need an open and functioning economy. And that without that, our capability to fight the virus, slow the infection will 
slowly degrade what what are your thoughts on, on this take it, it just seems that there's this greater tension in the public b- b- before you know some people arguing public health must come first uh, or the economy wouldn't work and some people saying economy has to come first or or public health wouldn't work and it, it seems from your research and much of our discussion today that a lot of the times it's not a nuanced dichotomy it's 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 it could even be posed as a false dichotomy sometimes because the short term economic pain is almost inevitable and the public health measures need to be taken place in order to have medium or long term economic recovery that sounds like something you you would advocate for i guess yeah what i would say is that the the economy isn't going to to be healthy or be normal until we convince people that it's relatively you know safe to go back to their ordinary lives and to, until we convince you know people that it's 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 you know that they can go out and go grocery shopping without having to be worried about uh, you know getting sick for example um and so i think you know that's that's sort of the root of of the problem and we need to devote as many resources as we can you know economic uh time-wise uh, and whatever else we can to kind of addressing the root of the crisis itself uh, and so you know i would like to see uh you know even you know more uh, of the money in the stimulus for example going to uh you know uh, directly to different incentives to coming up with treatments to coming up with a vaccine uh to you know uh, providing uh, uh, hospitals and healthcare providers with the resources that they need to directly combat uh, to combat the the virus, uh, as well as of course testing, which is something that we've been talking about over and over uh, and over again, which is really important. So it's it's true having a strong economy or having the resources to mobilize uh, to fighting uh, the the you know the pandemic uh, is is key. Um, but I think in terms of restricting you know. Introducing public health measures to restrict, you know, social interactions uh, in other dimensions, like for example, you know, preventing, uh, you, know, you know, limiting public gatherings, for example, at sports stadiums. I don't think that's going to be uh, that's particularly costly in terms of of solving the public health crisis. It's costly for the uh, for the economy uh, or for you know for those businesses, but uh, but in terms of solving the crisis, I don't think that that's that's uh, particularly costly. Since you mentioned um, about the stimulus package a little bit in terms of, you know, we should allocate more of that in terms of incentivizing treatments and and, uh, things like that. Do do you think the current set of recovery measures would actually disproportionately protect major corporations compared to average Americans? I'm not getting your complete thoughts on the on the. Uh, stimulus package per se, but, but since you study, you know, financial crises and 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 recoveries, uh, a lot of people are saying, you know, in in that kind of uh, recovery process, um, you know, big banks or or big major corporations would actually get more benefit out of it, and then inequality mechanism actually kicks in, and and poor people only get worse off. Uh, so I would just love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on, you know, your research in financial crises and how. Uh, that kind of tie into the, the pandemic crisis we're seeing today. One of the important things, uh, whenever you have a crisis, is that there's some, you know, burden of adjustment that has to be shared throughout different sectors of, of the economy. Uh, and what we saw in 2008 was that, you know, some sectors of of the economy, uh, you know, like for example, lots of of, of homeowners, uh, essentially. Did not, you know, receive much relief uh, in terms of uh, of the losses that they experienced, uh, and other sectors, uh, you know, like the banking system, 
uh, in some ways came, came out better. And so I think there is an analogy there to today where there is, there is you know, this kind of classic political economy problem that, you know, sectors, uh, industries that are concentrated and powerful uh, can uh, tilt policy uh, to, to benefit them. And so I think that is, uh, th that is, you know, one of the risks that, you know, can also in the medium term lead to a popular backlash against, you know, against the government, uh, against, against these policies, if we, uh, you know, design policies that benefit, you know, major corporations and save major corporations uh, and shareholders of, and bondholders of major corporations uh, ahead of, uh, of, of, of ordinary people. Um, so I think that is uh, definitely a concern uh, with, uh, with, with, uh, you know, the current crisis management policy. And that's something that we learned can be can have lasting implications for politics, you know, many years after the crisis. That's what we learned after after two thousand eight um, and other crises as well. So you you chose to do this study, obviously, in the context of a global pandemic. Was there an impact that you hope to have on the global policy response? I think at at the outset of the study, we weren't, you know nearly so ambitious, I think, uh, or optimistic. We, you know, essentially just wanted to understand, you know, what should we expect from, from a pandemic? What can we learn from history about what the expected economic impact uh, of, uh, of this pandemic will be, you know, to the extent that there are some, some similarities um, between that experience in 1918 and today. Uh, and then we also wanted to understand, well, what's the right way to kind of try to think about you know the different policy uh, trade-offs, but we didn't really go into the study with particularly strong priors about uh, you know what the impact of the of the pandemic itself was in 1918, or you know how you know the impact of these policy measures on on the economy. Um, and I think that's you know that's in in general how research should be done. Um, and I think now you know the the, the findings have sort of uh, and 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 the findings you know combined with a lot of the really good theoretical research that's being done on this is sort of allowing us to have a better understanding of what, what we should expect and also what the relevant uh, policy options and policy trade-offs or maybe lack of trade-offs uh, that, that we face. We're on the topic of policy and the name of our show is Policy Punchline. Uh, just gonna ask you at the very end, what's your punchline here you know, for, for your research on this crisis, for uh, the economic policies it entails or anything that you think we, our listeners should take away? The notion that we need to choose between limiting deaths from a pandemic uh, by you know, doing social distancing and other public health interventions on the one hand, and then having a normal economy on the other hand is a false choice uh, because the economy is just never going to be normal in a pandemic. Um, so, you know, the real takeaway is that for the economy to go back to normal, we need to defeat the disease and use, you know, all of the policy options that we have, including uh, non-pharmaceutical public health interventions to defeat the, the disease. Uh, Emil, I have to say, this is such an optimistic and encouraging message for our listeners, but, but also just, this is the perfect middle ground, you know, <laughs> between uh, saying, you know, we have to go all out shutting down the economy and we, we have to just, you know, not care about anything, but, but just save the economy. So it, it's, it's just such a great, uh, wonderful position uh, that, that I think more people should learn about. Th thank you so much for joining us today. It was great to be with you. And thanks so much for doing this podcast, which is fantastic. So keep up the good work.
Of course. Thank, thanks so much. And thanks so much for joining me all the way over from, from New York as well, Sam. Yeah, of course. That's great. Awesome. And this concludes our, our interview with uh, Emil Werner. Uh, Emil, where can people find out more about your work? Should they go on your website or should they follow you on Twitter? Yeah, website, uh, Twitter, all of the above. But yeah, my, all my research is on my website. Awesome. So, so uh, this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please visit us on policypunchline.com. Uh, rate and review us. Uh, follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Twitter. Uh, thanks so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.